0: So, William was in the room when his father noticed his grades. And he knew he was about to be in bad shape. But he's a, William's a thinker. And so he quickly said, Hey, dad, um, about those bad grades, do you think those are a result of heredity or environment? (laughs) Street smart kid, wouldn't you say? Well, we know that both play, influ- play a part in who we become, for sure. There's not much we can do about DNA, try as we might, and certainly there's a lot that can be done with environment, for sure, and thankfully, God has made us creatures of free will, and so even if we've been handed something that's really adverse to, to a positive, affirming human development, we can break the pattern, we can break the chain because of choices we make with our lives. And all of us can play a part in doing better and how we influence those who are coming after us. Many of us are parents and grandparents. I've learned as a parent that I'm kind of never finished. Have you learned that? And uh, we're, st- we're influencing our grandchildren. We have-, we have nieces and nephews. We have kids in our neighborhood that live around us. We have friends' kids and grandkids around us. And, you know, there's all kinds of kids. I hope in some realm of your life that you are influencing children. I remember when my uh, parents were pushing back about going into a retirement community Uh, I I said to Dad, Dad, why why is this so hard for you? And his first response was, when am I going to be around children? Now, I'm not giving you old folks another reason to argue with your kids about it, okay? Don't use it. But I understood what he was saying, that there's something about children that breathe life into us. And there's something brilliant about the way God has developed families. He puts us in families, how he's developed uh, relationships so that we play a great role in, those who come at, in the lives of those who come after us. And so we want to do well with that. We don't want to drop the ball. We want to keep learning and growing and, and understanding what is most significant in all of this. Now, I have been a most imperfect father. I hope my kids never have an opportunity to list them. Uh, and I had an imperfect father, although he was a good father, a good, good father to me. And I'm so thankful for him. And that's why I'm so thankful that as God's people together, first of all, we can make each other better by what we learn together, how we grow together. But, but more than that, we have a good, good father we've worshiped today, and he is a perfect father. And we know out of our imperfections, we can, the best thing we can do is point them to this good, good father who, have, who has treated us so far better than we deserve. And so, in the way that our perfect father has invested in us, we want to invest those things in those who come after us, the children we influence. And these are the seven things that kids need most. First is significance. Our culture suggests, uh, even if it doesn't actually teach, even practices perhaps, that we teach kids significance by putting them first or by making them the center of attention or treating them as adults when they're five years of age. But the best thing that we can do is ask, how does God give us a sense of significance? So, we look at Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. that says, for you created my inmost being, that is the Internal organs that the Hebrew is really suggesting, I think it must go further than that because it's more about even our our spirit, our as our soul, our personality develops. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb and suggests even our our skin covering that, that holds us together. You know, that, I love that imagery of, of being knit together and God's involvement in that, don't you as well? From the moment When from the moment that the egg and the sperm come together and there's conception, that is a human life. And we value personhood from that time forward. We we cherish that good news. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist saying, I am astonished, God, by the way you have distinctively made me. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Uh, in other words, my soul knows this. My soul deep within me knows that you have everything to do with this. My frame, that is my my skeletal system, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Or those, those ways of development, human development, that still the medical communica- community is researching and looking into, things... A development process that are still mysteries. I love it that I love it that your that your obstetrician can't really predict when that baby is going to be born, and I don't think they ever will. That's known only to God. Um, he says, "When I was woven together in the depths of the earth." In other words, when you think of the depths of the earth, you think of dark, deep places. It's the same idea of the womb that he reiterates right there as well. Your eyes saw my unformed body. In other words, despite all that is known, so much is unknown yet. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, I'm not a Calvinist. We don't teach Calvinism, which says that God has planned your whole life out, and it robs really a person of free will. We don't teach that and believe that we have free will. But that being said... I think, do think that God has a providential map for our lives from conception. He knows us, and he planned for us before the foundation of the world. But because of our fallen world, because of our rebellion, because of sin, we take lots of detours, and we end up in places and, and, and activities and in uh, all kinds of junctures in life that he never wanted for us in that mapping, but he gives us the freedom. To do what we want to do. And so the best thing we do is to seek his face always and get on track with what, he, what his best is for us. This is what grants us significance. He knows us intimately. He knows every breath. He is saying, I know you. I see you. I'm interested in you. It's, it's what our children need from us, our grandchildren. They have a name And I appreciate parents here when I meet them for the first time and I ask their name and they immediately go, and these are our kids, and introduce them by name because that creates a sense of significance. They have free will, so we allow them to make choices. Not every choice for their life because we are to guide them properly. But there are lots of choices we can help kids make, and we can give them freedom. Like, all right, do you want to wear this or this today? Uh, do you want this for your lunch or this for your lunch? Would you rather do this chore or that chore? Even that kind of decision helps them have a sense of significance that their, their, their choices are given. They have worth, so we spend time with them to show them how much we enjoy them and love to be with them. That's what Jesus did when he walked with his foot. When he trained his men to carry on after him, it wasn't primarily by pouring information in them. It was by spending time with them. And so we do so with one another and with, those, with children and grandchildren and children in our lives at all levels. We build significance by giving them tasks to do. That's what God did from the very beginning, isn't it? When he put Adam in the garden, he gave him work to do. That's one of the ways that Adam felt significance. And so he told him to have dominion. The first job he gave him was name the animals. What a fun job that would have been. Noah, build an ark. Abraham, start a nation. Uh, Moses, get those people out of slavery. Uh, Joshua, go in and claim that land. He was always giving significant responsibilities to his servants to lift them up, and he empowered them to do it. And we do well as parents, as grandparents, to do the same sort of thing. Second, we give them security. You know, here's this. I'm glad we don't have great memories about the birthing room. Are you? I mean, you come through that birth canal, And suddenly, turn the lights off, for crying out loud. Who's touching me? Why is it cold in here? You know, all those kinds of things would go in our mind. We'd still be uh, suffering even PTSD or something, you know, because of that. So early on, you know, we hold on to a blanket or a stuffed animal or a doll or something for security. We live in an age, we know, of great anxiety. Life has always been filled with anxieties of different kinds. But in previous generations, it doesn't seem like we let our kids in on them. We protected them from life's anxieties, didn't we? We knew it it wasn't healthy for a child to be exposed to all the anxieties. 21st century kids are stressed out by home conflicts, by increased mobility, by a lack of healthy boundaries. And by living in families who demonstrate that things are valued over people. You know, uh, security in the home. If you want secure kids and grandkids, then you be secure. You be secure in your relationship with God. You grow in security in your marriage. And you demonstrate security and all that. And that's how you build secure kids. Comes from being together when there's order in the home, when the healthy, happy relationship's going on. How does God build that security in us? Go back to Psalm 139. The psalm begins this way You have searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it completely. No one knows you like the Father. Nevertheless, whatever he sees, he is so anxious for us to know him more deeply. He's always welcome him, wel- wel- welcoming us to a new level of intimacy with him. And when we have an intimate relationship with God, when he's not just a, some kind of acquaintance, we grow in security. He sees us. One of the things we come together is we want to see Jesus. He's to be the centerpiece of this worship service, the centerpiece of our life. I mean, just when you go to one of your grandkids or kids or nieces or nephews or neighbor kids, school concert that you have to suffer through, what happens? You're sitting there and they go on the risers and you see all these necks suddenly crane. Oh, there she is, third one on the right. That's the only kid you care about that's up there. And what's your kid doing? Stand in the audience looking for that one face, they're happy to see. That's the picture of God noticing us and us recognizing God in all the realms of our life-being experiences. Are you looking for him everywhere? Are you seeing his hand at work? See, that's, that's, that's where it all happens. And so we grow in that. God breeds securing us by his affirming words in the Scripture, by the fact that, that he came and he touched us, he gave us boundaries for life. So let, let, let's, let's let children watch us watch the Father and welcome him. Third, acceptance. John McKay was great, uh, a great football coach, head football coach at USC for 10 or 15 years And his son played for him for a while, and in one of the interviews after a winning game, uh, the interviewer said to McKay, "Uh, it must be a a, a great joy to have your son play for you, and he played such a great game today. I'm sure you're proud of him. He said, oh, I really am proud about the way he played today, but you know, if he didn't play football at all, I would still be equally proud of him. That is a model of acceptance. Acceptance. And you know, for us parents, sometimes that's hard to get to because we have these dreams for this kid that we're carrying, that we're expecting, anticipating. We hope they'll be smart, like us, or musical, like us, or athletic, like us, or an extrovert, like us. And when they're not, you get disappointed. You know, a, a, a child can recognize that, and acceptance is realizing that your kid is made completely different from anybody else, and we accept that. That doesn't mean we don't guide them in the important issues of life. This is talking about their personalities and their natures and their, their giftedness. Romans 15, 7, Paul writes, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He writes this in the context of, of the church and the Gentile-Jew relationship. It was hard. You can imagine. For the Jews, God's chosen people who had come to Christ and understood that, suddenly see the Gentiles out of not chosen people To become Christians. That's what what the Judaizers were trying, they were trying to misinform and lead astray the early church by saying, you can't just be a Christian from being a Gentile. You got to become a Jew first, which was ridiculous. And Paul had to address that. So, in that context, he says, look, church, you got to accept each other. Don't we do that here? I mean, I'm quirky, and you are, and I can frustrate you, and you frustrate me, and, and we have differences of opinion. But we go forward accepting one another because we have one Father who unites us together. And the same thing is true. Is the Father has accepted me and my dirtiness and my sinful, the way I disappoint him still and my life, and he still wants me and accepts me? Yes. And so we do that. Think of Jesus walking with the 12. We have three times recorded for us that they argue about who's most important among them. And God doesn't say, Would you get out of my group? He still walks with them and He loves them and He has dreams for them and He waits for them to mature and grow up. God accepts us by listening to us, by acknowledging our value over and over, by His kindness, by His grace. And we do well to practice that in our parenting and our grandparenting and our aunting and our uncling and our cousining and whatever relationships you have with kids. Next, they need love. In 13th century, uh, Frederick II uh, was king of Germany, and he, uh, he did a, a diabolical experiment. He wanted to know what primal language is. In other words, if kids weren't exposed to language, what language would they speak? And he was sure it would be German And so the sad thing he did is he took newborn babies from their mothers, a large group of them, and he put them in the care of nurses who, except for feeding and and, and changing them, were not permitted to touch them or hold them or speak any words to them. And they all died for lack of word and touch. The two ways love is communicated word and touch. I like this parent's paraphrase of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Though I have all the right words but have not love, I might as well be talking to the back of your head. Though I have all the answers to your every question and have read every parenting book and have all the resources to pave the way for your perfect future but don't have love, I have nothing. Though I give you everything I have and sacrifice every ounce of my energy to keep your ever-growing body in clothes that fit, and feed you square meals, and ensure your teeth are brushed and your emotions are vented and your friendships maintained, and oh, maybe even eventually send you off to college. But have not love, it's useless. Love is patient as it paces back and forth across the living room late into the night. Love isn't jealous. When you trade your homemade sandwich for a friend's Twinkie at recess. Love doesn't need to prove that I know more than you do, that I'm the boss of you, and that I have it all figured out. Love doesn't rub your nose in your mistakes, but extends arms of grace. Love is crazy for truth and celebrates when you discover it. Love can deal with the tantrums and the mood swings, it trusts God in every season, and it carries on and on into grandparenthood. It's the, it's the screaming cheerleader at your game, the beaming face in the crowd at your recital, and the basket case on the night before your wedding. It's the voice on the phone checking in, the porch light on, waiting at the end of the day. Love won't quit. Colorful toys and baby blankets will eventually be packed up and put away, field trips sports days, and school dances will come and go. One day, in the light of eternity, we'll better understand the depth and complexity of this heartbreaking, beautiful life we share. But for now, we have three tasks to keep us on track. Put our faith in God, hope wholeheartedly, and love lavishly. And the very best thing we can do is love. Our kids also need praise. Mark Twain said, I can live for two months on one compliment. Benjamin West was a uh, Revolutionary War period painter, and uh, he tells about how, how, what encouraged him to become a painter. He was at home, and his mother left him in charge of his younger sister, Sally, and while mother was gone, he noticed these colorful inks, and so he got them all out and said, Sally, I want to I paint your portrait. So she sat for him, and by the time mom got back, the kitchen was a wreck. There was ink everywhere. It was a sight. And she walked into the room, and she walked over the table, table where Benjamin was, and she picked up his paper and said, Why, it's Sally! And then she leaned over and kissed him. And Benjamin West's testimony is, it was my mother's kiss that made me a great painter. What a great story of encouragement. You know, Jesus tells a story about a man who was going away on a journey, and he left three guys in charge of his money. You know it well. And of course, when, when the manager, when the, when the guy comes back, he asks, he asks for a report, and those to whom he had given a certain amount, they had had doubled the money that the master gave. They invested it well. And, you know, uh, we know that's right before he goes to the cross. He's teaching us about investing our life, uh, and we know it's about uh, taking all that you are and doing something with it. But what we really remember most is that statement. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. It often comes up in sermons because we love that picture of of, of that commendation. We all want that throughout the course of our lives. Our kids are so hungry, hungry for praise, and we, we praise them for what, for what they had available to them. You know, studies show time and again that kids are criticized 10 times more often than they are praised. And for every critical comment they receive, they need four words of affirmation. Do you lift up your children And your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, you praise them. Now, when we do, let's do it for the right things. Let's don't praise them for the things over which they have no control, like how cute they are. They had nothing to That was pure luck. That's all that was. And looking at you, it's probably miraculous. Uh, You know, if, if they have... You know, uh, they're smart. You are so smart. Well, they had nothing to do with that. That's DNA. You know? Uh, Better to say, uh, I I really appreciate how hard you worked on that test. That way, if you know they worked hard and only came out with a B minus, you're still praising them and honoring them, not only if they get an A, right? Because kids have different abilities for different grades. I have one child out of three who worked harder at school than the other two, and got I got the lowest grades of all three. Um, you know, be, better to say, uh, man, you you, uh, I really appreciate how hard you worked at practice to play well for the game, because you see, it's better than saying you are you are a natural athlete. Because that same kid can be a sloth at practice and doesn't have to push as hard as others and, and do well on the court, right? And so what we are noting is their hard work in preparation. Or, I really appreciate how you're a team player. I really watch how you share the ball. I, I love how I, I heard you encourage one of your players, keep that up, that's good. You see, we want to praise the things over which they have control uh, and in which they are making choices that are healthy and right? So let's make sure we praise them for, for the right things and be able to say to them, well done. And they need discipline. A 12-year-old was filling out a form, and it said, there was a blank saying, parent, guardian, and he put the name of his dad. Then it said, relationship, and he said, very good. <laughs> That's what we want, right? We want a very good relationship. And that really can't happen without sound, solid, healthy discipline, because kids need wisdom and patience and persistence and consistency in how we direct them in preparation for adult life. It's unfortunate, though, the word discipline is often aligned with the word punishment, Hebrews 12, 11 does say, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Actually, there are three kinds of discipline, three ways that we discipline. One is by regulation, that is, we draw boundaries. And a kid who doesn't have healthy boundaries that are communicated well is going to be all over the page. They have to have, we all need boundaries. That's why God gave us his word so that we would know right boundaries. They're not to limit us. It's not to rob us from life. It's to protect us and help us. And and, and all of us who influence children need to have such boundaries. And we as grandparents need to honor the boundaries that our grandkids' parents set for them. Or cheat every now and then, maybe? I don't know. Oreos are really good all the time, right? Yeah. No, we need, to, we need to be consistent and walk together. Regulation, and then there's imitation. That's another kind of discipline. In other words, the life that we're pointing them to is the life we must live before them. We've heard it over and over again. More is caught than taught, right? And so, do you, in the course of your life, do your, the kids you influence, do they hear you being so thankful to the Lord? Do they hear you honoring God in your life? Do they hear you consistently telling the truth? Do they watch you in your other relationships? Do they hear you gossip about other people, tear people the are down, slander people? You see, they learn by imitation, and they also learn by inspiration. In other words, we want them exposed to people who we want our kids to see as heroes, as people worth looking up to. I remember when our kids were little. that uh, Diana found this book called uh, The Moral Compass, and, and we read stories in there. They were just stories of greatness, of people, and, and what they did that was noble and worth emulating in life. Regulation, imitation, and inspiration, what our kids need and what discipline is all about. Out front in our lamppost, we have a clematis growing there. And I'll look out, and Diana's doing stuff and uh, sometimes printing, but usually tucking, tucking. And, and what she's doing is shaping because there'll be this wandering branch, you know, and she tucks that under another branch to shape it. That's what we do with kids. We are shaping them by, 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 by disciplined lives we lead, by living the life of Christ, by pointing them in the right direction, giving them healthy boundaries. And of course, they need God. They need God. When Princess Margaret was five years old, the newspaper reporters overheard her when she was coming out of church, and she was bitterly disappointed. She said, she was overheard saying to her her mother, that minister, why did he pray for you and daddy and Elizabeth but not me? I'm just as bad as you are. You know, you know, kids, kids know they need God. They just do. We were created in his image, and children have a sense for God. They don't argue about Jesus. They don't. Have you ever heard a five-year-old say, I don't believe in God? The only way a five-year-old ever says that is they're parroting a parent. That's the only way. My wife, Diana, uh, works in the public school system in elementary school, and a lot of her work is about helping hurting kids. And in that process, she has to discover what kind of resources the kids have available to them to work through their hurts. And then one of her questions she gets to is, does your family have a church you go to? And without exception, a kid from a family who doesn't go to church sort of hang his head and say, no, because they know and they wish they could. Are you doing everything you can to see that children are exposed to the Lord? Psalm 78 says this, my people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. God put the responsibility of the next generation knowing Jesus Christ squarely on the home and the family. It's our responsibility when we leave this place. Now I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful that you understood as a church we have that responsibility as well to to undergird the family. That's why we built an 8 million dollar children's building. Praise God for for his supply through you people of faith, all of us working together for that. And we want to care about that more and more because that's the future of Plainful Christian and the future of our town. It's the future of the kingdom of God. But don't leave it here. Don't think because we built a children's building we've done it. Because far beyond the treehouse the kids climb on and find this place to be happy is the impact of where you live and how you interact with children in your life. One man said, Father, My dad is getting old, and soon I'll receive word that my dad has died. I'll go look at my dad's face the last time, and I'll say, Dad, you made it hard for me. You made it so hard for me not to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And so our Father, here we are, bruised, broken, scarred, nevertheless, Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, and He has spoken, you have spoken to us through the heavens, you have spoken to us through the prophets, but ultimately you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus. And we are thankful we have in our hands today the Word of the living God. And so I pray, Father, that we will make you a reality to the children over over whom we have influence. I pray that when we look at a child, we will love that child with our eyes, with our countenance. I pray, Father, you help us to speak words of kindness and grace and acceptance. Help us to love them as you have loved us. And I pray not one of them who have been in relationship with us will miss the grace of God. Thank you for being our good, good Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you secure in the Lord today? It starts by being born again. When you are baptized into Jesus Christ, you begin a relationship that's rooted in security. Not because you're so good, but because he is. It's all about his blood poured out. And then we grow in that security the rest of our lives. So that even when we mess up in our families, in our work, in our personal lives, our private lives, our heart lives, our mind lives, nevertheless, his blood is always at work. Praise God for a father like that. And so we invite you to faith in Jesus Christ today. We urge you to be born again in the waters of baptism. Let's stand together and sing.